Three Irish bankers have been jailed in Ireland for their part in our banking crisis. But this week, the heart and soul of Anglo-Irish Bank, Sean Fitzpatrick, was acquitted of all charges against him. Much criticism has been made against the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, the office in charge of the case. But internationally, regulators have always found it very difficult to prosecute white-collar cases like this. Does it mean that professionals like lawyers, bankers and accountants will always push their practice to the legal limits and outgun hapless and poorly resourced public regulators? Or is there something deeper afoot, a lack of political will in Western governments to police financial practice? In studio, Jim Power is an economist, Siobhan Nikulikon is a barrister and Kieran Hancock is the Irish Times business editor. Siobhan, if I can start with you, you know, Ordinary people were absolutely shocked to see Sean Fitzpatrick yeah. be acquitted on For all sure. charges. And then more shocked to discover the extraordinary investigative practices that were going on in the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement. What was your read of the Well, actually, lawyers, happened? some lawyers were very shocked as well because a lot of this emerged during legal argument, which can't be reported by the media in case the case ever comes before the jury and might influence their thinking. They might have heard something in the media that wouldn't have been referred to in court. So actually, for a lot of lawyers who weren't in the criminal courts of justice, they wouldn't have known that this was coming at all. But we did know in the CCJ that there were issues arising in the course of that trial, you know, in in barroom talk, I suppose. But even then, I suppose we hadn't realised the extent of it and the seriousness of it. And a lot of the information about the coaching of witnesses and the preparation of witness statements only emerged in the recent legal argument because there's been a lot of criticism. Why was this trial like one for so long? Well, why did it ever go to trial in the first place? Well, I mean, on paper, it looked like a statable case. I mean, the case was investigated by the ODC, but it was then sent to the DPP. And the DPP has an independent function in every case to review the evidence on paper. And on paper, obviously, it looked like a stateable, sustainable case. And even after the first trial had collapsed, when we knew that Mr O'Connell had shredded documentation which ought to have been provided to the defence, there still clearly was, in the DPP's view, enough evidence to sustain a prosecution. And at the end of the day, it's in everybody's interest that there be a prosecution, that these issues be ventilated in court, that standards be applied and that the decision be taken by a jury. I think the judge in this case really was inclined, would have liked to have let this case go to a jury and let the jury, who stand for the people, make the decision in the case. And what happened really was that the unfairness was so intertwined with what happened that it wasn't possible to extricate enough fair evidence to put the case before the jury. But it has come as a big shock to the system and maybe it will be a wake-up call. The members of the public, of course, feel very cheated. You know, there was a lot of anger about what happened in the banking crisis here and possibly the ODCE felt that they had to provide a scalp and this particular scalp, in fairness. Mm. You know, the public were baying for blood and they carried out an investigation which from the start they wanted to build a case against Sean Fitzpatrick rather than investigating what happened and whether there had been a criminal offence and if so, who was responsible for that. They actually set out to look for evidence against Sean Fitzpatrick. Well, people who come into the criminal courts are entitled to fairness and fair procedures and they're entitled to fair investigations and those are the standards. Everybody goes to the same prison and therefore everyone is entitled to the same standards in the course of their investigation. And that's the standard that wasn't applied in the case. Kieran Hancock, I've seen some people make the accusation that the ODCE was not properly resourced, that they didn't have the correct level of staff to do this. 
And then, of course, they go conspiracy theory and say, well, that was deliberate because there is no political will to resource these kind of offices and investigations properly. Is there anything to that? Yeah, there's also a counter theory as well that the political will was that there had to be a scalp. And we know that Tanisha Mary Coughlin was given a confidential briefing by the ODCE back in 2010, which seems a, a bit unusual, although they say there was nothing improper about that. You know, that's that's perfectly within the scope of, of what they do. I don't think it was properly resourced. I think that's generally accepted now. Um, the ODCE came out with a, a statement post the judge's decision to direct the jury to, you know, effectively acquit Sean Fitzpatrick and said that, you know, they accepted the criticisms and they made a point that they have been significantly resourced uh, since that time. And I think there are still a couple of gaps on the forensic side, but, you know, essentially they have been uh, they have been resourced. So my understanding of what happened is they had a, a number of cases uh, relating to Anglo running at the same time. One involved the Maple 10 um, and one involved uh, the, the loans that went backwards and forwards between Anglo and Irish Life and Permanent. Yeah. They took up huge resources. They needed somebody to take charge of this particular case involving Sean Fitzpatrick and his personal loans. My understanding is that Kevin O'Connell put his hand up and said, I'll do it. He, was, uh, he wasn't really experienced or trained um, sufficiently to take on a case like this, uh, particularly in, you know, it was a criminal case. Uh, effectively, I think his expertise is probably more on the civil side. And he did, you know, he did a lot of the work himself. Uh, he wasn't properly resourced. And again, something that emerged subsequently after the judge had set, uh, had set Sean Fitzpatrick on his way, uh, it emerged that, uh, you know, the guards have been very keen to sort of back away from this and, and make it clear that really, you know, this was nothing to do with us. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's entirely fair to Kevin O'Connell, but nonetheless, he's he's the person who's been left to hang out to dry on this. But I, I think it's clear that really the, the ODC at that time didn't have proper resources. And do you think they are resourced now? It's hard to tell, really. It's hard to know. Uh, they say they are or they're getting to that point. But it, it's it's really hard to know. It's 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 a difficult thing to to actually quantify um, whether you are properly. I mean, on the one hand, it depends how much work they have on, um, and they probably have less on now than certainly in terms of big ticket cases like the Anglo uh, cases that they had previously. But then again, they're you know they make the point that they they are drilling down into other areas of white collar crime and. Uh, they're they're pursuing perhaps a lot more uh, cases, but maybe not of the size or substance of an Anglo case. Siobhan, you want back in? And, and yeah, just to say that it's not just a question of resources, it's a question of how the resources are used because it is also, it happens where there's an interface between a civil agency and the criminal justice system. Sometimes we see it between the HSE and Tusla, for example, and cases involving you know children before the courts. They They just have a different direction. They have a different emphasis. They're setting out to do something different than the criminal justice system. So we need to work on that interface better and where the ODCE needs to really build up its experience and its training is in applying criminal law standards and fair procedures at the criminal, at the level required by the criminal law. The standard of proof is higher, but so are, you know, the requirements of fair procedures. They're rigorous and the courts will apply them. I mean, it's, it's I have to say, a tribute to the judiciary that they were prepared to stand up in this case. You know, the judge was the, the person who stood up and said, this isn't good enough. And, you know, that is a great thing that we have a system that can be trusted. I've been been a bit surprised at the level of anger directed at the judiciary because personally I think the judge was doing a really good job and I do think he would have liked it to go to the jury but I think the ODCE need more training, more you know, more focused resources rather than just throwing more money at it. 
So now, Jim Power, you know, so we know about Kevin O'Connell and his various troubles and the things that he did and shredding in that. But I was surprised to see that Paul Appleby, who was the director of this agency, was involved in this too. So there were statements where there were deletions and suggestions by him as to things that could be put into the statements or taken out of them. And what really gets to people is, is that he managed to retire early with a little bit of um, help as to that how he could uh, retire on the best pension. The Irish Independent reported since then he's received 590,000 in his various pension benefits and that. So this, these mistakes are made, but he walks away with his pension while people are left carrying the can still for the banking crisis. Yeah, well, apparently there are minutes of a meeting in March 2011, just after the new government came into office, where Paul Appleby said that the office of the ODCE was properly resourced or sufficiently resourced. Okay, so that is in itself very, very interesting. But yeah, I mean, the notion, I think this comes down to, to me, as a non-legal person looking in from the outside, it looks like gross incompetence from the ODCE at so many different levels. I mean, it's one thing having sufficient numbers to do the job, but are the quality of the people in there of sufficient um, standard to do the job properly? And it's clear they weren't. So it's a debacle at so many levels. And I think it just gives sucker to those who are, you know, out there on the extreme left who've been gaining a lot of traction. So I think that's a big issue. But yeah, I mean, what will really stick in people's throats is the fact that the guy who oversaw the beginning of this process walked away with a massive pension. But that's the story of Irish corporate life. I could outline 30, 40 people out there in a similar situation. That's how we do business in Ireland. There's no accountability. And can we get it? You know, you made a good point there about, you know, there's this fear of populism, the extreme left or the extreme right, as we've seen in Europe. But, you know, the centre will only hold if something is delivered to the centre. And surely public service accountability is part of that. But we also heard this week that in the last decade, only 55 civil servants lost their jobs over the last decade. Yeah. How are we ever going to get that accountability in? Well, after 2011, the opportunity to ensure that sort of accountability committed system was there. It was an open goal, uh, but the open goal was missed. I, I don't think anything has changed in terms of accountability. Um, I think exactly the same things are going on still. The gross level of incompetence uh, that was so obvious in many areas of the public sector. I I shouldn't let the private sector away with it either. I mean, there was a lot of it in the private sector. But in the public sector, the level of accountability uh, just was non-existent, is still non-existent. I don't think anything much has changed. Um, Public servants don't lose their jobs. I mean, what has happened in the last week, I think, will just make people so, so angry. And just people have walked away um, very well out of the whole story. Kieran Hancock. Let's take up that point about Jim. I, I, I don't think um, those uh, numbers of civil servants have actually lost their jobs. I think they've left their jobs, which is a, a slightly different thing. People in the civil service don't tend to lose their jobs. And, uh, you know, people walking away from uh, public service roles, not just Paul Appleby, but at all levels of the civil service and public service, over the last number of years, people have walked away with some very generous pension payments, lump sums, uh, and indeed pension payments. Jobs in Brussels. Yeah, jobs in Brussels, uh, mm-hmm. etc. So it's not just, I mean, Paul Appleby's in the spotlight, fair enough. But people at all levels of the public service and civil service, and that's what really sticks in the craw of people in the private sector, because they've seen their pensions uh, being, you know, demolished and dipped into by the government, absolutely, over a number of years. Legalised theft. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. And, 
you know, that makes them really angry. And they look at civil servants and public servants who've been able to retire over the past uh, number of years with big lump sums and, you know, very generous pensions, certainly relative to, to what they get in the private sector. And where should that ire be directed? Because I've seen other people make comments and say, you know what, the politicians should be the ones to pay the price for that, that if they won't force um, responsibility upon the public servants, well, then we're right to blame the politicians for that. Well, I mean, the politicians have paid a price. I mean, if yeah, you look at the government yeah. numbers, for example, they got decimated. I mean, Fine Gael lost one third of their seats. Labour came back with seven seats. Fianna I think they were decimated it, it before goes, that for uh, the banking crisis. I think it goes back to the point I made that after 2011, there was an open goal to address all of these issues and the government failed to score. And you why the park pa- agreement, Jim? Uh, no, I, I just mean generally the government came in with a massive mandate to significantly reform the way we do everything nothing changed Um, they had an opportunity as well to burn senior bondholders with Anglo Uh, they were warned off it by the ECB Uh, Jean-Claude Trichet told them that a bomb would go off in Dublin potentially if they did that Uh, they were told that you know effectively we could leave you uh, hanging out to dry here if you attempt to do that and the government backed off now you know the government might say well look how the economy has turned around since then and that's fair enough you know they went for the certainty rather than the uncertainty and it's it probably is a difficult call to have to make but, you know, a lot of people, they wanted to see some tangible evidence that the, the bankers and bondholders and, and so on were taking some of the pain as well. And well, that was definitely a, an opportunity missed. Um, Siobhan, I want to ask you about the auditors because they have come in for an awful lot of criticism as well. So in this particular case, the ODCE specifically said to EY, the auditors, look, we're not investigating you, OK? We're investigating Sean Fitzpatrick. So, you, you know, you, you can cooperate with us. But say in, in the previous case um, of Willie McAteer, Dennis Casey and John Bow, they were the bankers who were convicted of swapping money between Anglo-Irish Bank and ILMP to try and save um, Anglo-Irish um, judge Martin Nolan, he was the judge in that case. And um, in his um, remarks when he was sentencing those three, he said a beggared belief that the accounting firm Ernst & Young had signed off on Anglo's interim accounts. They should have known what was happening if they did their job properly. And it seems incomprehensible how these accounts were signed. He said he did not know if it was blindness or willful blindness. Yeah. Um you know, they, they all seem to have walked away We definitely away all have 2020 vision, I have to say. It's not that I'm, you know, making excuses yeah. for any of these guys. But, you know, the work that was going on in Anglo-Irish in relation to the funding that was coming in and going out and the loans and all the rest was going on over a long period of time and was, you know, concealed in different account, different parts of accounts. And it's very complex. I mean, the case against Shawnee Fitzpatrick was just incredibly complex by anybody's standard. There was one section of the Companies Act being interpreted in four different ways. I mean, the whole key to fraud prosecution is to keep it simple and straightforward. But the advantage that um, Anglo-Irish bankers had was that they had an enormous panoply of files and accounts and uh, transactions in money going in and out and that they were maybe able to camouflage things better. You know, is that always the case, excuse me, with this, that these white collar cases are very, very difficult to prosecute for that reason? So in the UK, the serious fraud office is known as the serious farce office because they find it so <laughs> difficult to prosecute these cases too, that the public regulators will always be outgunned and swamped well, by the bankers. It's, it's actually a feature of the criminal justice system in general. I mean, there are other types of crime that are very difficult to prove. You know, there are other crimes that happen in private where there's only maybe a victim and, you know, rape cases 
there's only the victim's word against the accused's word. Um, there may or may not be forensic evidence in support of that. There may or may not be paperwork in support of a fraud case. You know, it's just that really very few people will know exactly what went on. And when an investigator goes in to look at a situation, there are lots of pieces of a jigsaw, but there may not be all the pieces of a jigsaw. And sometimes jurors are asked, is there sufficient, are there sufficient pieces in this jigsaw for you to make the connection between this accused and the crime? And sometimes they'll say no and they'll acquit. I mean, in criminal cases, people who have committed crimes will try and conceal their crimes. So very often the gangland offences are very difficult to prosecute because they're premeditated, they're thought out, they're planned. There's very little evidence behind for the investigators to find. And that is a feature of the system. And then for people who who didn't commit a crime, there won't be a whole lot of evidence against them either. So the question for the jury is, is this a case where the evidence was not properly investigated, was destroyed, or where there was never any evidence? And that's why juries are so important. Or Jim Power, is it a case that really all all of these things that were done that brought the financial system to its knees around the world and not just in Ireland were actually legal because the regulatory system can just never catch up with what the private sector is doing, constantly pushing the legal limits of all these products and all this financial engineering. Yeah, you're talking about a regulatory system here and elsewhere that is poorly resourced generally and they're dealing with the people they regulate who have massive financial resources all sorts of accounting expertise, etc., etc., on their side. So I, I think the reality of regulation is that regulators are trying to run faster and faster to stand still, but those they're trying to regulate are actually running faster. And I have no doubt about it, we could be sitting here another five years talking about a different type of financial scandal that we know nothing about at this juncture. So that that, that is definitely the situation. Yeah, it makes like, life very, very difficult it's for like regulators. Cybercrime agencies yes, exactly. are employing hackers because people who are being trained in IT aren't at the cutting edge. It's the hackers who are at the edge. And it's a bit the same for the for the white collar crime because the people involved also are very well educated people. So they have a very good idea and they've a good idea about the consequences of their actions and they've a good idea about how to avoid the consequences of their actions. And for the regulators, they really are up against it. Or, are you I, I, I think it's also the case that in a small country like Ireland, regulation is particularly difficult because when you're in a small country, these people that are regulating are being regulated, you know, they're in the same golf clubs, they, you know, they, they hang around in the same social well, circles. Well, you had the case where Sean Quinn dropped in to see Patrick Neary, the financial yeah. regulator for Cup of Tea and, yeah. you know, it's That's, all very polite. It's, it's ab- absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm involved in a small financial services company here that is regulated by the NFA in the United States. And I mean, the level of regulation is extraordinary. Yeah. You know, it goes down to an incredibly minute detail. Uh, but as an outside regulator, regulating something here, that's easily done. But it's much, much more difficult when they all hang around together. Well, there's a problem as well. Extern regulation. What about Satanta? I mean, Kieran will understand mm. it better than me. I'm the this lawyer, the but it's insurance. not quite my end of the law. Yeah. The insurance company was regulated oh, in Malta, farcical. wasn't it? Yeah, it's farcical. So you had this Malta uh, registered company called Satanta which only sold into the Irish market at about 75,000 policyholders here. Uh, it went bang. Uh, the policyholders were, were left hanging, effectively. There's 1,750 claimants who are waiting to be paid after their claims paid. There's a, it, the process is being liquidated, so it was potentially regulated out of Malta, and the liquidation process is being handled out of Malta. There's a creditors meeting next month, which is going to be in Malta, in spite of the fact that you know most of the creditors, claimants, policyholders are in Ireland. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And yet the Irish, you know, effectively Irish motor policyholders are are 
going to pick up yeah. the tab in one way, shape or form. So it was decided by the Supreme Court that the insurance compensation fund should pick up the tab, which means that the insurance compensation fund will pay 65% of all the claims. We'll see if the liquidator has enough money in the pot to bridge the gap. But the insurance compensation fund uh, is essentially a levy on everybody's uh, non-life insurance policies. We're paying 2% at the minute for the failure of Quinn Insurance. Yeah. So what's going to happen is that, that that levy that was probably going to run for about a decade is now going to be lengthened in time. And in addition to that, uh, Owen Murphy, the Minister of State at the Department of Finance, to avoid a similar scenario ever happening again, he's uh, reached an agreement with the motor insurance industry that they will bridge this 35% gap. The insurance compensation fund will be on the hook for 65% and the industry will pay 35%. But the industry, you know, they've agreed to that, but that essentially means that they're going to have to levy their customers and policies to build up a fund. And the that point can be being, in these are not victimless crimes. Well, the, the point being that this was because of EU uh, passporting legislation, effectively, this company that was registered uh, in, in Malta, and it's a failure of regulation really in Malta, um, regulated in Malta, was able to operate in, into the Irish market uh, and basically go about its business in a fly by night kind of fashion. And then it went out of business and a lot of uh, Irish policyholders are left swinging. And, uh, you know, effectively, Irish taxpayers are picking up the tab. Jim, I want to put something to you, but there's this phrase, regulatory capture. And it encompasses this idea that, you know, as you were suggesting earlier, you know, the regulators are literally captured by the industry because they, you know, not in kind of any explicit way, but they're just under constant pressure and lobbying from the various industries they're supposed to be regulating, as swapping personnel between them. Say in America, there is a, a road between Wall Street, the White House and the Ivy League colleges. You know, there's no real interest or zeal in actually cracking down on any of this errant behaviour. No, there's not. Uh, regulatory yeah. capture, you yeah. know, is basically where those that have been regulated um, are not capable of being regulated by those that are meant to be regulating yeah. them. Uh, the whole thing is just so incestuous. And as I said earlier, I think that is a particular issue in a small country like Ireland where circles are so small, they all know each other. Uh, but but it's not unique to Ireland. You know, it's 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 the same in New York. It's the same in San Francisco. You, you, you hear cases of, you know, those that have been regulated have a very close relationship with the regulator. So when that situation exists, mm. um, it does actually undermine the ability of regulators to do their job properly and to make the hard decisions that are necessary. But I also think, and I think this is a really important point, I said it before, and that is the financial resources on the side of those being regulated so far outweigh those on the side of the regulator. Mm. Now we're going to talk to Joris Leindijk. He's author of the banking blog at The Guardian and the associated book Swimming with Sharks, A Journey into the Heart of Finance. Good morning, Joris. Good morning. So, Joris, we've had this case during the week where a very famous banker has been acquitted on all charges. And it's led to this frustration that, you know, despite everything that happened for the last 10 years during the financial crisis, very, very, very few white collar executives have paid the price. Is this just about Ireland or is this the case in the Western world? I think in the Western world generally. Uh, there, there have been a few uh, scandals where people lower down were made to pay and they were made the sp- uh, scapegoat, but the top people escaped. And so not only did they escape without being prosecuted, which I think was justified because the terrible thing is that you don't even have to break the law in many cases and you can still sink a country or the world economy. Uh, but also that they could walk away with their bonuses and compensation, as they call it, intact, 
even though that bonus was paid out over acti- for activities that turned out to be not profitable at all. So I think the, the thing that the signal that this, this, this latest court case sends again to the banking community worldwide is that the lesson of 2008 is eventually you'll get away with anything. And I, that's uh, the point that you've been making there is that in a lot of cases, the problem is that what was done wasn't actually illegal. That they were always careful to say what, whatever they were doing, is it actually legal? Why wasn't any of this stuff illegal? Well, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and think of the Panama Papers with this, this vast network of, of financial vehicles that allow rich people and corporations to basically avoid within the law uh, taxes. And President Obama, then President Obama came out saying, look, you know, the real problem, folks, is that most of this is legal. And these banks have vast machines of legal compliance, risk managers, auditors. Um, if, if you actually talk to bankers, what I've, uh, I've been doing this for a few years, they complain and they complain and complain about hardly being able to do banking. It's just all box ticking with all the regulations. And it's become so complex. And this is the thing. If you ask, I kept asking those bankers, how can you live with yourself? Mm. And they said, I don't break the law. You know, it's the sign by the road says that I can go 120 kilometers an hour. Now, yes, I'm going through a residential area. Yes, I'm driving a truck packed with chemicals. But the sign says I can go 120 kilometers an hour. And if the whole thing blows up, I have a parachute. And that's where, and this might sound desperately naive, a word like morality might come into it, that even though you can do something, do they ever ask themselves, should they do it? I think they do, but then they they only look at what they call reputation risk. There's this delectable vocabulary to take morality out of finance, and reputation risk is one thing. So you, you look at a product or a trade or a deal, and you don't ask yourself, is this right or wrong? You ask them, uh, how would this look on the front page of the Irish Times? And if it would look good, then, then you do it. And the, the overriding mentality is one of amorality. So I knew nothing about finance. I, I went in interviewing these people, and I thought that they would be like the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, and a coke-snorting psychopath <laughs> uh, selling you shares in companies that don't exist. That's not true at all. They're actually quite dull. And what they will tell you is that the Wolf of Wall Street is immoral, you know, selling people shares in companies that don't exist is immoral. Breaking the speed limit is immoral. They are amoral. So as long as the law allows it, you'll go for it. And the thing is, these, these banks compete, and they are listed on the stock exchange. And many investors, including our pension funds, mm-hmm. they look at the results of those banks, and they will say, well, the bank that made the most profits, that's the bank that we will buy shares of. So there's also pressure from an unexpected corner, us, consumers, investors to pushing those banks to constantly game the system within the rules and try to make as much profit as they can within those rules. Another aspect is the sheer complexity of the financial um, industry. Uh, One of the regulators that you interviewed said, the real threat is not a bank's management hiding things from us. It's the management not knowing themselves what the risks are, either because nobody realises it or because some people are keeping it from their bosses. Yeah. I thought that was actually one of the most terrifying things because I, I, I was interviewing those bankers and I thought I'm, at one point I'll find regulators. They were also banned from talking to me. Uh, I'll find regulators and they will explain to me that actually, you know, the, the, the big risks have, have been taken out. The, the problem is fixed. And they said the opposite. They said, you know, nobody, even the CEO, can have an overview of what those big banks are doing because it's, it's become so complex. And then the, 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 
job security. People can walk out of their banks if they're given a better offer within five minutes. They can also be fired in five minutes. Mm. At the end of the year, in many banks, there's a cull. So they fire the 2% worst performing bankers and staff. And so it's so complex. And, and people don't share information even with their own colleagues because they're worried that the information might be stolen or it may be used against them in the next round of redundancies. And so it's a, it's a low trust or a no trust environment. It's a low loyalty, no loyalty environment. Then it's hugely complex and there are fast rewards as long as things go well. And there are almost no punishments when things don't go well. Well, you don't need bad people in such an incentive structure to have really bad outcomes. Now, so two things that might fix it I want to put to you. One is abolishing the bonus culture. And a lot of the people you spoke to constantly identified the bonus culture as driving a lot of these kind of behaviours. Do you think would there be any prospect of abolishing the bonuses and just pay people for doing their jobs? It's very difficult, and I think this came, uh, this came up with uh, earlier, uh, previous speakers as well in your program, is that the globalized nature of finance. So if you as a single country would ban high-frequency trading, you ban bonuses, you ban all these things pushing people to do, uh, to, to do trades or, or uh, deals that are actually bad for the environment or the bank or the shareholders, then those banks will just relocate. And often you don't even have to move your physical building. You don't have to move your physical people. You can just book activities under a different jurisdiction. And so in, in many ways, especially the UK, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here in London, is you, you have to ask yourself, is the UK a country with a financial sector or is it a financial sector with a country? Because if the country doesn't behave, it, for example, it threatens to Im- implement a number of measures that would make banking safer, then the banks all threaten to pack up and leave. Okay, and then the other solution is women, because it was noteworthy that in Iceland, the only bank that survived, its senior management were all women. And I know you spoke to a a woman who worked in PR with the banks, and she noted that she was often the only woman in the room. Is it a gendered issue? I think it's, you know, there's this joke, uh, what if it had been Lehman Sisters? Yes, yeah. (laughs) Christine Lagarde said that, if it had been Lehman Sisters, yeah. Or or gold gold woman sex. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is ultimately a fantasy. I mean, I did interview a lot of female bankers too. I think ultimately it is about these incentives. And women may respond slightly differently to incentives. For example, if you are a 20-year-old, very successful woman, it works against you in the dating scene. Whereas if you are a very successful 28-year-old male banker, it works for you. So, So incentives do play out differently according to gender. But ultimately... I think with the current system, you could staff it entirely with women, highly competitive, super ruthless. Uh, for example, many of, the, many of the ruthless ones I interviewed only had brothers. <laughs> and, uh, and you can still keep the system running. I think it's, we have to have a different system with different incentive, different accountability uh, structure, different ownership structure. That's a lot of hard work. And in order not to face up to the hard work, we think, oh, but only if we just ban them from using cocaine or we bring in more, more women or we... I think ultimately we, we just need to redesign the thing and then the behavior will, will sort itself out. It's, I also spoke to a lot of men who were also suffering from this system. So it, it only the current system privileges only a particular type of, of, of male, you know, the sort of silverback gorilla. OK, Kieran Hancock, did you Yeah, want just to, to say uh, we haven't had bonuses paid at Irish domestic Irish banks for about a decade now because of the crash. And arguably, the Irish banks, certainly over the last five or six years, have been better run uh, over the past five or six years than they have been in uh, in many, many years. And the government has a salary cap in place uh, for, for half a million 
um, for, for the likes of AIB and uh, permanent TSB Bank of Ireland has just hired a new chief executive who's outside that gap but Who's a woman? Uh, and Jim Power you want K- to get Karen, into that? Karen, I don't quite agree with you that the banks have been better run the last five or six years um, I think that the banks are behaving as they've beha- behaved in the last five or six years because they don't have the resources behind them um, in terms of capital etc to engage in the type of irresponsible behaviour they did um, I think once we get back into a normal banking cycle um, they will behave in exactly the same manner and the regulators will be running faster and faster to try and catch them again. Well, yeah, that, that might be true, but there's, uh, to be fair, uh, you know, we can only look back at the past five or six years. There's no point in sort of throwing it forward uh, the next five or six years. I think AIB is still going to be in state control for a, a number of years to come, so I, I can't imagine they're going to be allowed uh, pay bonuses. But what, what does state uh, control under, mean? Under that, I mean, um, when you look at what the ODCE did, that's an organ of the state. I mean, just just because something is managed and owned by the state doesn't make it better. No, that's true. In that's fact, true. But when the when the state when the minister for finance said he wanted some action taken on standard variable rates, AIB reduced their rate three times in the space of eighteen months. Now, Bank of Ireland, which wasn't under state control, only fourteen percent state owned, didn't. Well, look, I might, Joris, I'll ask you one final question then and let you go. And it's this: Could it all happen again tomorrow? Has anything changed in the meantime? I think a lot has changed in terms of bringing in more regulation and more regulation in order, in, I think, in the hope of mitigating the inevitable next wave of abuse. Because I, I agree entirely with the previous speakers, is that the, the, the fundamental underlying mentality, which is created by the existing incentives, that's all still there. OK, well, then I will let you go with that. And will I see you at Kilconomics again this autumn? I definitely hope so. <laughs> Great. OK, thanks a million euros. Thank you Thank for you. that. Um, Siobhan, what did you make of all of that? You know, that you, there just is a fundamental system here, a bonus culture, a technology, high frequency trading, an incentive system, a lot of men. And really, you can bring in all the regulations in the world and it will never change the beast um, and its nature. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it is it is the big Emphasis is always on enforcement. I mean, even in our drink driving legislation, there's a lot of emphasis on the enforcement of speeding laws and drink driving and everything else. And at the end of the day, all of that is less effective than teaching people why it's why it's wrong. I wonder, is there a, a way we could strengthen and improve the whistleblowing system mm. that, you know, people who are in... Now, I know I, I did hear what he was saying about not, not sharing information in the banks in case it might endanger your job and things like that. But there must be some people who could raise flags along the way or could have raised flags along the way and whether that's something we could look at, you know, maybe strengthening these organisations from the inside out rather than... Yeah, and you know, we'll come to that in the final part of the programme. But just before I do, Jim, I want to come back to you on the regulators and the quality of it. And um, we have to give Pat Neary a mention. He was our financial regulator. And my favourite favourite quote of the entire crisis was by Colin McCarthy, which was in the famous Michael Lewis Vanity Fair article about everything that went wrong. This does involve unparliamentary language, so those who are sensitive um, should switch off. He said that everything changed at roughly 10 o'clock in the evening of October 2nd, 2008. On that night, Ireland's financial regulator, a lifelong central bank bureaucrat in his 60s named Patrick Neary, came live on national television to be interviewed. McCarthy said... What happened was that everyone in Ireland had the idea that somewhere in Ireland there was a little wise old man who was in charge of the money. And this was the first time they'd ever seen this little man, says McCarthy. And then they saw him and said, who the f*** was that? Is that the f***ing guy who's in charge of the money? That's when everyone panicked. So, <laughs> and Pat Neary is now away on his pension of 114000 per year. So, 
you know, if that's the guy in charge, is have we any hope still? I mean, is it still the same kind of system? Uh, well, he's, he's not in charge anymore, <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Yeah. But yeah. Um, no, I, I think that demonstrates very clearly the whole problem with the system. I mean, uh, the regulator will never be able to pay the sort of money to attract talented people in to do the job. You know, they will all go to the private sector. They will end up working so on the we? other side so of the I fence. Know, so I know that I've just been complaining, say, about, you know, pensions and that. But is that the solution? Say, so you know what? We're going to pay the regulator. Well, one, of, one of the dangers here, obviously, is peanuts and monkeys. You know, you, pe- yeah. you pay peanuts, you'll get monkeys to do the job. And, um, you know, it is, it is interesting that loads of people were flocking into NAMA, for example, um, at the beginning of the crisis. And suddenly, as the private market started to pick up, they all started leaving and working on the other side of the fence. The central bank faced exactly the same problems. During an economic downturn, it's very easy to recruit talented people. But once the labour market starts to heat up, as it really is heating up in this economy at the moment, those people start to leave again, go into the private so, sector. Kieran, so, what do you think of that? Pay more, pay them millions, pay the regulator millions, pay them the big fat pensions, and we won't give out about them once they do the job. Yeah, I don't think regulators are, are ever, or state agencies are really ever going to be able to pay the kind of money to compete with the private sector, particularly in, in financial services. You know, the, the international financial services companies, we've such a big sector now in Dublin that I think they're always going to be able to outcompete regulators and so on. I think we do have a very serious regulator in place now, uh, Philip Lane, and you know he's not getting paid uh, yeah. the, the earth, uh, shall we say, and I think he's a pretty uh, serious operator. And the other point, I mean, I take Jim's point, and they have lost some skilled people uh, in the central bank to the, the private sector, but the numbers in the central bank keep growing every year. If you look at their annual reports, year after year after year, they're on target for 1,800 people. I think this year they're planning to hire another uh, couple of hundred There's people. There's a difference so. between quantity and quality. Sure. No, I know. accept that. I accept that. But nonetheless, um, there are still a lot of people joining the central bank. New, net new people joining the central mm. bank every year. So, you know. Sarah, can I, just, Jim, can, yeah. I, can I just paint the picture of a regulator, Pat Neary, sitting across the table from chief executive of a bank. Pat is earning whatever, 140,000. The chief executive across the desk is earning probably a million basic and multiples of that in terms of pension, etc. I mean, it's a totally unbalanced equation. And um, how somebody like Pat Neary would ever be able to stand up to somebody like that just beggars belief. But there was an issue, I think, in the past where officials from the Department of Finance, you know, essentially there was this established practice whereas they would go and take up senior positions like governor of the central bank. That's been that's been stopped now. And actually, and Philip Lane getting that job of governor of the central bank was very important. And Patrick Honahan before him because they came from Trinity, not from the department. And Siobhan, how difficult it is for regulators and institutions like the central bank to compete with the private banking industry for high quality staff. Yeah, well, there are a lot of dedicated people working in the public service as well. And job security means a lot to people. Uh, Sometimes people don't want to be in jobs where they might be fired, one of the 2% who's fired at the end of the year. Yeah. You know, that, and there are a lot of very dedicated and very hardworking people. And maybe what they need is more focus and more training and a clearer vision of what exactly they're looking out for and what um, rules and regulations need to be applied more stringently. And, um, uh, you know, maybe as well, our legislators need to look at the Criminal Code and the Companies Act. I mean, the case for Shawnee Fitzpatrick was a Companies Act case. Maybe they need to look at all of that again and see is it fit for purpose and see how it can be reshaped. You know, so it might be more a question of changing emphasis 
um, and training people to look at different um, things rather than... And is there any sense as well that this needs to be done in cooperation with other countries, you know, the EU or via the OECD, you know, that we can't do that kind of thing on our own? Well, I mean, certainly the EU has been very valuable over decades now at bringing in uniformity and um, higher standards for, you know, some countries than others, obviously in different areas of... Uh, legislation and it's uh, it's been very valuable and you know London is going to be outside of that the big biggest financial mm-hmm. sector it, that that uh, yours was talking about is going to be outside of that from now on so it'll be um, a very interesting um, parallel you know developing in in the future. Kieran, I think well, just in terms of regulation, we have mm-hmm. the single supervisory mechanism now in and Europe. What's that? This is pan-European regulation. This has come in post the crash. It's an arm of the European Central Bank. So what it means is, in essence, the big banks in Ireland are effectively regulated out of Frankfurt rather than out of uh, Dublin, uh, although the outsourcing of the, the regulation on a day-to-day basis is is largely outsourced to the Central Bank of Ireland. I'd say, just in terms of regulation, I would say, yeah, in Ireland, you've got to separate it into domestic uh, financial services and international financial services. I think the Central Bank probably has a much better handle now on the regulation of the domestic financial services, certainly, than it did pre the crash. In terms of international financial services, I'm not so sure. Um, and I, I think, you know, international firms could probably still run rings around regulators, not just in Dublin, but, you know, across Europe. Uh, but I do think they have a, a better handle on regulation now of the domestic firms, although obviously there are still issues out there, for example, with the trucker mortgage scandal and so forth. Jim, and the question I had put to Joris Leindijk earlier, you know, was it naive to mention morality? It's very naive to mention morality, absolutely. Bankers don't do morality. In fact, very few people in life do morality. Business doesn't do morality. But exactly, exactly. Business doesn't do morality. And one of the things that drives that, of course, is shareholder expectation. Mm. I mean, the, pensions. The, the, the rise of Anglo during those years and, and, you know, drove AIB and Bank of Ireland eventually to follow suit. There's no doubt about that because shareholders in AIB and Bank of Ireland were giving their management teams a lot of grief over what Anglo was doing in terms of share performance, etc., so everyone has to stand up and take responsibility, you know, for what actually happened. But looking back on what has happened over the past week, you know, you can beat about the bush till the cows come home. But the bottom line there was that it was gross incompetency on the part of the ODCE that delivered that outcome. And that sort of gross incompetency has to be punished. There's no doubt about that, in my view. So, Siobhan, you know, Michael D. Higgins was talking in Brussels about how, you know, we need a more ethical approach uh, to finance and to business. Now, if we're all agreed, (laughs) Jim is shaking his head. I'm shaking my head. I mean, you, you look at people on country roads who dump rubbish. You know, as a nation, we don't do morality. Absolutely. Siobhan, on that, then how do we save ourselves from it happening all over again? Well, I mean, the lawyers can't. The the law doesn't enforce morality. That's, you know, the law has standards and that's what the law enforces. And, you know, the public would say to you, it's because we were enforcing our standards and not the morality that Sean Fitzpatrick um, had to be acquitted. And... The reality is that morality changes from person to person anyway. My morals probably aren't the same as Jim sitting across the table from me or from or the same as yours. Yeah. So how do you implement something that's personal to every individual? So final word then, Karen Hancock. Is failure inevitable then? Don't know if it's inevitable. <laughs> I wouldn't think it's inevitable, Sarah. <laughs> let's, let's not be as depressing um, as that uh, for such an early time in the morning. But I think, uh, you know, failure has happened. 
and we will have failures in the future. There's no doubt about that. But, but I think I we've don't learned think a lot from it. I think we will have learned a lot from it. And I imagine nah. that there's a review going on of a whole load of cases that have still got to come before the courts. And I imagine that there will be, you know, a careful thought put into how the ODC are going to progress in the future. And uh, <laughs> no, I do think, I look, this has shocked people to the core. And it hasn't just shocked the public who don't have an avenue to voice it. It has shocked the establishments as well. And I do think there will be changes as a result of it. Now, I know Jim wants to get back in, but I'm afraid if he does, everyone will be sobbing into their cups of tea. We'll risk it. A, a brief, we, we, we should a just brief look word. at 300 years of history, Sarah. These okay. issues just keep repeating themselves in slightly different ways. Okay. And that will remain the case. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you don't now start your day realising we're doomed to failure. That's Jim Power economist, Shivani Kulikon Barrister and Kieran Hancock, Irish Times business editor. Many thanks for that. And just to let you know that our last podcast is up more on morality, this time in terms of Chelsea Manning, WikiLeaks and Whistleblowers. And you can get that by searching for Talking Point in your podcast player and at Newstalk.com. And also you can subscribe. It'll be there for you whenever you want. So that's it for today. Many thanks. Thanks to my guests, Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan Produced, and thank you for listening.